And so now we're going to go to John 4. I'm going to read, um, it's a lengthy read, but let's begin. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That would be 12 noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? The understatement of the year, isn't it? Are you greater than Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Another understatement. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation or a Savior, either way, is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. 
When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The subject I want to speak on is we ought to witness in order to make worshipers. We ought to be witnessing to make worshipers. Piper said in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Now watch. Missions exist because worship does not. We went to Rodeo to witness on a mission. Why did we do that? Is that the chief thing of all the universe? What is the chief end of man and the universe but to glorify God and worship him forever? But we went to a bunch of people that don't give God any worship because they're going to hell. They don't know Christ. Their lives are in a mess, and the church is to go to witness in order that the witness will produce a believer and only believers can worship. But they're not born a worshiper. God didn't find you as a worshiper. He found you as a sinner. He found you worshiping yourself, your agenda, the me, 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 and you. We love to worship. It's just we're fussy about who it is. If it's not us, we don't want to do it. And so God has to work in our heart. So Piper rightly says, you want to go to men and women because we're trying to form a worship choir that will sing with the 24 elders around the throne, worthy is the lamb that was slain to save us from sin. So we witness in order to make worshipers of God. I want to look at three things. Now, you can remember this chapter pretty easy. If you just thought of witness, a woman, a well, water, worship. If you can say W, and I'm not talking about George W, I'm talking about W, uh, you can remember this. But there's three things I want to hang my thoughts on. Uh, Jesus is on a mission to find sinners. Jesus is on a mission to find sinners. Are we? Two. Jesus offers the only drink in town that satisfies forever. Three, Jesus turns sinners into worshipers. Uh, Jesus is on a mission to find sinners. Here we come to this narrative, and uh, Jesus decides to go through Samaria. It said in verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. He did not have to go there uh, logically. Uh, most Jews went through Samaria. That was the shortcut to Jerusalem. It was only the radical, fanatical, devout Jew that wouldn't go through Samaria because they would go around to Perea uh, on the east side of Jordan. They didn't want to be contaminated with Samaria. They hated them. Uh, but the majority of Jews said, oh, I could set aside my hate 
long enough to take the shortcut, go through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. But here it says crisis, and he must go through Samaria. I believe this is a divine mission that had been worked out by he and the Father before Christ ever came. His must, the imperative was, there's a sinner there that I plan to turn into a worshiper. I must go out of my way. And by the way, the journey cost him energy. It wears him out. And he lands there at noon in the heat of the day. It wasn't easy on his humanity, but he had an assignment to go out of his way to find a lost woman, just like he went out of his way to look you up. He put you in his itinerary, or you'd never been saved. And so he goes there, and he finds a Samaritan woman. Let me tell you what the problem was. In 2 Kings 17, when the Assyrians invaded Israel, uh, there were Jews in Samaria, and they deported them. But in their place, they brought in five different peoples to occupy the geography of Samaria. And, and by so doing, they intermarried with Jewish women, breaking down their Jewishness, so it was almost, the Jews saw it as genocide, Besides that, if you read 2 Kings 17, they brought in all their different gods. They put in a little bit of Judaism. They rejected the book of Psalms. They gave up the prophets. They only bought the first five books of Moses. Uh, they, it was syncretism. They brought in all these different religions. They brought in all these other Gentiles. So Samaria was a, a half-breed nation. Religiously diverse and apostate. Ethnically, they didn't know who they were. They didn't know who were the, their fathers. And so the Jews saw it as an affront on their religion and an affront on their race. They hated it. In 400 B.C., the Samaritans decided, we're not going to Jerusalem we're going to build another place of worship. And they built a temple at Mount Gerizim. And that's where they worship. About 122 B.C., the Jews invaded the land and burnt down their temple. So this hostility is raging in the land of Samaria. So for Christ to even include going to this kind of people, this racial diversity, anti-Jewish, it is an amazing that the Messiah of Israel will look up a fallen Gentile woman of the worst kind. She's a woman. And in the ancient Near East, women had no voting rights. They could not speak in the synagogue. They sat in separate places. They were good for having babies and doing manual labor. They were not esteemed highly. Then she's a Samaritan. Then she shows up at noon, and to show you how popular she is, nobody else would be seen dead with her. All the other women of it, you'd get the water early in the morning since water weighs eight pounds to a gallon. It's not a, white, a, a, a light thing to be carrying water. You do it early in the day. But none of the women want to be down there because this woman has a way with men. 
She's always going to have a man. Now, we don't know what happened to the husbands. She, they either died, were divorced, or poisoned. But they're not around. You see, women are hard on men. That's why they're getting all the insurance money. Guys, don't get any more insurance. They're hard on us. She was really hard. Where are all the men? And they only had a village. A village might be 500 people. So just think if you had all your husbands in the same town, and now I'm, I'm living with another guy. By the way, having sex doesn't make you married. Shacking up isn't a marriage. Sex does not equal marriage. She's living with a guy. She's having sex, but she's not married in the sight of God. You have a lot of people who say, well, what difference if you get a certificate? Who cares if you say you're married? This woman was living with a guy who said, she's not married. Just living with your boyfriend doesn't make you married. doesn't mean God's blessing it. You're not married. Because marriage means you publicly declare this person is spoken for, and I pledge my allegiance, I'm spoken for, and so that our children will not be illegitimate. They will be the result of a covenant bond between us. Marriage includes a covenant, and today people want sex. They don't want the covenant. They don't make any promises because they're treacherous at heart. They want to bail out anytime you get sick or look ugly. They want out. So they don't want to make a covenant. Honey, put out or I'm out. You know, we're Californians I'm talking to. This would be offensive in Texas, but you laugh because you get it. This is our culture, right? He goes to this woman. I must see this woman. Come on, Jesus. You've got more important things to do than to look up a fallen woman. Don't you? Don't you? I mean, what credit would it be to say you led this woman to the Lord? She is not that. You need to lead a banker to the Lord. You need to lead. lead. Come on, you're working on Nicodemus in chapter 3. Now why this fallen woman? Nicodemus is way up here. She's way down here. She's the worst category that you could even as a Jew be associated with. And to be with her alone at noon opens you to scandal. Jesus is not afraid of your color, your category, nor your circumstances. He comes looking for sinners. And they come in all varieties. He doesn't care about all the categories. And when he gets there, uh, he... Uh, starts talking to her. He sets up his evangelism that he's going to offer her a drink she's never had before, and she misses it totally. Watch this. Verse 7, a woman comes, and Jesus says, give me a drink. Now, now he was thirsty physically, but he's going to use it as a hook to go to the thirst that's in her. And so she says, wait, wait, uh, you don't even have a bucket and you want me to get, and you're a Jew. Uh, you don't need, we have nothing to do with each other. What are you doing asking me to do you that kind of favor? Jesus said, if you only knew the gift of God and who's talking to you, 
I'm the true fountain of life, and you don't know it. And I would like to give you a drink. And there's two things about my drink. Watch this. You, I'd give you a drink, and you'd have living water, and you, you would ask for it. Notice verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water, the water at Jacob's well, they, they'll be thirsty again. The water that I want to give you, you'll never thirst again, and it will be welling up to eternal life. What he's saying, it's living water, which meant it's moving water. It's water that comes like from a spring. It's not stagnant water. It, it's bubbling. Now, now, there's two ways that water is interpreted. In John 7, he's going to say, I'll give you living water. This spake ye of the Holy Spirit, which had not yet been given, for the Son of Man had not yet been glorified. But he also said in John 14, the words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And so some have combined it, that the water being offered are the teachings of Christ placed in us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And what he's offering her is eternal life that makes the Spirit come in and make you understand the teachings of Christ. And he's saying, I am the drink woman that you need. You've had a lot of relationships, but you're still thirsty. Uh, there's a cosmic thirst in you. Every man and woman live with a thirst in this life. And if you die without Christ, that thirst remains with you for all eternity. For the rich man in hell, all he wanted was a drop of water. For to live and die without Christ is to be eternally thirsty, to be eternally empty, eternally wondering where I could find satisfaction. Now, the marvelous thing, Jesus said in Matthew 5, he that hungers and thirsts after righteousness shall be filled. But here he says, if you drink this water, you'll never be thirsty again. So how's that? I'm supposed to hunger and thirst, one, over here, if you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. What he's saying is, once you come to me, you will never have to search again for water. If you come to me, you'll never need to look for bread to quench the hunger of the soul. But I want you to keep an appetite. But now you've found, I've got a storehouse of supply for your appetite. And I want you to hunger and thirst for what I'm able to give you and you alone, but the resources I bring are massive. They'll satisfy all the hunger you'll ever have for all eternity. So you come, but you're no longer looking for the source. You're no longer looking for the supply for water, bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread from heaven. You eat of me. You assimilate me, and you'll never be hungry again in the inner man. You'll never thirst again if you drink of me. And she doesn't get it. She's saying, wow, if you can do that, give me a drink. And she's still thinking of physical water. So then he goes a little deeper. Go get your husband and let me tell him about this. What he was using was this, watch. The greatest way to the heart is through an open wound. 
and the open wound in her life is she couldn't find anybody to marry her. They'd shack up with her, but the men in town got the word out, don't marry this woman. She's too hard to live with. How can five men be wrong? I used to quote that blues song, a woman done run off with a garbage man. I don't miss that woman, but who's going to empty my can? Well, <laughs> see, uh, this was a mean woman some way. I just see someone emptied the can. Uh, you ever hear blues? She's a hard-headed woman. The men don't even talk about us because, man, we are indescribable. But, boy, we love to trash women. This gal's got a problem. She can't even get anyone to marry her. And yet the king of glory looks her up at the well. And you know what? He doesn't call her a whore. He doesn't call her a loser. He doesn't call her a streetwalker. He said, you know what your problem is? You're a thirsty woman. You're a thirsty woman. The innermost recesses of your heart have never been filled with anything that satisfies. And you keep looking. You keep trying. You keep going on. This woman had to be a bundle of heartbreak, a bundle of disappointments. I don't think any woman would want to be married five times. But it's heartbreak, heartbreak, heartbreak. And Jesus said, well, go get your husband and... At that, she says, you, you whoa, I'm talking to, maybe to a prophet. Uh, how do you know? Uh, well, I don't have a husband. He says, you're not kidding. You don't. And see, when he did that, Jesus hit too close to home. So now she's going to play the religious card. Oh, we differ with you guys on religion anyway. She moves from her marital status, moves from her moral life. Let's discuss theology. I think you ought to be at this mountain. It had nothing to do with what he's trying to do. So moves over here, and Jesus goes right. He says, oh, you want to discuss worship and where to do it? I'll do that. First of all, I came out of my way to find you at this well. Two, I've offered you the drink of myself, eternal life, that will quench your thirst. And I've exposed, you're naked before me, lady. I know your whole life. And you know what? You may be here today without Christ. This might be your well today. You're at the well. And the prophet is speaking through his word and exposing you. You're in sin. You're in rebellion. You don't even know why you're here. There's nothing else to do. If somebody invited you, you get them off your back. You come, and all of a sudden, someone's meddling with your life and saying, who do you think you are to describe my life? You see, when you were dealing with God, we all looked the same in the shower. That's why we clothe ourselves so much. The older you get, the uglier you get, the more clothes you need. That one guy said, we don't even keep mirrors in our house. <laughs> See, he comes to us where we are. He meets us at our well. And we've been running to a lot of wells, pleasure, possessions, Power, oh, personal relationships, uh, pursuits. Oh, we got all of these wells we drank from, but you keep staying thirsty. You keep trying one more thing, one more relationship, 
one more hobby, one more trip, one more this, something to fill up the void of your heart, and men die without Christ and then remain thirsty for all eternity, never finding anything in the deepest recesses of hell that can fill an empty heart. And the one that could do it, they reject it. Only Jesus can satisfy the longing of your heart. He's the missing, missing person in your life. Don't, don't worry about another boyfriend and another girlfriend until you meet Jesus. Don't even worry about that, for he's the only one that can quench the thirst. Now they get in this debate over worship, and uh, it, this runs the gamut. He, he goes through Samaria to meet a sinner. They discuss water. Now it gets to worship. And let's just look at it. Jesus said to her, because she's arguing over the right place to worship, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, two things about this woman. She's hooked up on location for worship. You've got to be at a certain place, Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem. Christ says, first of all, I want to tell you, something's totally changed with my coming, Jerusalem is no longer going to be the center of worship, neither is Mount Gerizim. For what did he say in John 2? You will destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. This spake he of his body. Our new temple for the believer is Christ. Wherever Christ is, is where you can worship. You know, I think of us naming our buildings. Family Life Center, Worship Center. I guess that was the best we could do. It's, it's really ridiculous. This is not a worship center. As soon as all you folks leave, there will be no worship in this place. Empty buildings don't worship. You getting it? Look at me. <laughs> this is not a... The worship center is Christ. And my heart. And because some of you are here today and you've never worshiped. But you're in the place we call worship center. Because location doesn't make you worship. Just because you're in the pew, and I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just talking to what church folks are. That's why I told Ezekiel, when you prophesy, don't look at their faces. Most pastors have to learn to find a target out there that doesn't depress. So I keep looking at the exit, what everybody wants to do, run out. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't know how many worship today, but I don't know how you sing just as I am and get into one stanza of it and your eyes not stand in water. It's moving. And he says to this woman, forget location. And two, you guys are all wet, you Samaritans. Worship, you, you've been making your own religion. He could have been very ecumenical and said, well, we're all worshiping the same God. Allah, uh, crystals, hug a redwood tree. Uh, you know, we're all God's little children and we're all God. No, 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 no. Uh, baloney. Bunch of religious garbage. 
just because you guys have been meeting up Mount Gerizim and sacrificing animals and going through your religious routine, it doesn't lead to God. The only way to God is come through the Jew, and you don't know it, but the Jewish Messiah is standing in front of you. You'll never know God except through him. We've got the monopoly on it. You don't have to be a Jew by racial birth, but you must come to a Jewish Messiah. He's not white or black or brown. Who cares what color Messiah is? He came through the seed of Abraham. You've got to put your faith in him. I am he standing before you. And then he goes on to say, you worship what you don't know. Isn't that most false worship? Worship, a lot of going on, but you don't even know. The hour is coming when you will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I'll, I'm going to pick up worship next week. I can't say everything that needs to be said. But Philippians 3.3 3 says three things mark a Christian. They worship in the spirit, it says. They glory in Christ, and they put no confidence in the flesh. Those are the three marks right there. They worship in the spirit. They glory in Christ, and they put no confidence in the flesh. That's the true circumcision of God, Philippians 3.3. 3. Now, let's talk a little bit about it here. Worship. What is worship? Worship used to, in the Old Testament, included so many externals, a priesthood, a tabernacle, a temple, uh, animal sacrifice, all of this. And they used the word proskuneo, to bow down to. That word just evaporates when you get to the epistles because it doesn't talk about forms for the church that you have to have this man, you have to have candles, you have to genuflect, uh, you have to have stained glass windows. Nothing about ambiance in all the New Testament. Nothing about the kind of building. Nothing, none of that is said. You've got to have a steeple. You've got to have a cross on your building. None of that happens because the New Testament church started in homes. They just, wherever they met, but the Old Testament required a priesthood, a temple. He says, no, 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 there's coming a day, boy, you won't do that. The worship will take place in two realms, spirit, not Holy Spirit, small s, and truth. What he's saying, the spirit is in the inner man, the realm of my heart, the internal life, not external, and in the realm of truth. And it's basically truths about God's greatness, God's goodness. And um, he said, that's where worship will take place. Now, let's ask ourselves today, did you worship? And what is scary is you can do all the externals and not worship. You can preach and not worship. You can pray and not worship. You teach a Sunday school class and not worship. You can sing and not worship. You can be in the choir and not worship. Uh, 
you could be all over this church doing different things, and at the end of the day, if someone asks you, did you worship? The only way you could answer that was your inner man connected with God in adoration, adoring him for some truth, some aspect of his character, of his activity towards you, redemption, salvation. He's great. He's majestic. Uh, worship is the honor, acknowledging of God that it, we want to honor him and adore him. And the closest thing to worship, and please excuse me, we need lovers to write worship songs because worship winds up being loving God. And it gets mushy, and it gets intimate, and it gets gooey for you cerebral types who think all God is is knowledge. Knowledge. This is what happened in the Great Awakening. When Jonathan Edwards wrote Religious Affections, the East Coast was full of brilliant men, many of them Reformed churches, many of them Calvinists from Europe that were a starchy, correct, right, and all that mattered was doctrine and right, right, right. Well, what happened in the awakening on the East Coast with the preaching of George Whitfield and the preaching of the likes of Edwards and the sinners in the hands of an angry God, people would swoon in meetings. People would begin to scream in meetings. They thought hell was opening up. Edwards described it so graphically. And, and there was, uh, you, men would bust out weeping. And so they had such men as Chauncey who wrote a rebuttal that the Great Awakening was nothing but so much emotional rubbish. Jonathan Edwards picked up the pen for his own church, was caught up in the revival. He was caught up with George Whitfield. And he said, no, 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 no. What God is doing on the East Coast, we've had excesses. We have swooning. We've got different emotional extremes. But what we've discovered is a God that is adored and loved is not just a correct answer. He moves the affections so that you love him, so you feel joy. You've got peace. You feel exhilaration toward him. You feel like you're going to burst. You feel like you're in his presence. It's better than booze. It's better than sex. It's better than anything this world can offer. He is the highest high. He is the greatest drink. And your body feels like it's going to burst. And so we start get, seeing even in Christianity. Here I grew up in Pentecost where I craved a lot of truth that I never heard. But believe me, we were free emotionally. Then I go over here to all these Baptist schools who had a lot more truth than the people I was running with. They touched on a lot of other things. And so I went over here for truth. And then I come out, and I don't run with either group. And all of a sudden, guys in seminary say, you were the only guy that wept during the lecture. Rich Rollins always said that. He said, we all thought you were weird at seminary. <laughs> he did. He said, you were the weirdest student we had. And I said, why? 
He said, because when Dr. Schaefer would start describing the attributes, start describing he elected me from the foundation of the world, I'd weep. I couldn't believe he would choose me. I came home to my daddy. I said, Dad, you've got to hear something that we never heard. I've never heard it, and I hope it doesn't offend you. And he said, what is it, son? i never forget. He sat there. My old mama sat there. My sister Hazel sat there. And the other three had married off, so it was just the four of us. I said, I heard today, Dad, a teacher say that before God made the Milky Way, before the foundation of the world, he decided he was going to save a bunch of Howards. And he did it before the foundation of the world. I said, Dad, what do you think about that? Because I thought he's going to be offended. We don't buy that election stuff. I never forget him right here. He bowed his head. And uh, my daddy would get happy. He'd do something like this. <laughs> trying to shake it off, kind of. So he's just trying. He, and I said, what is it? He, he, he just threw his hand. I can't talk. I thought, what's he shaking off? And then he, then he finally said, it's too wonderful for me to take in, son. I can't describe it. I'm waiting for an argument. He said, could we just bask in it a little bit? And my little mother over here, just a farm girl, knows nothing about theology. She can't even spell theology. She's, her tears are running down her. My sister's over here weeping. There's no theologians at the table, just a bunch of worshipers. He said, thank you. You chose us? You wanted us before time? You mean you said you were going to go by South 15th and Cutting in 1958 and save a punk kid? Yeah, I put you in my agenda. That was no accident that Tuesday night on South 15th when I saved you. I planned that from before the foundation of the world. Do you think you could worship a God like that? Do you think you could get emotional about it? And I begin to find out truth doesn't dry you up. Truth makes you have some reason to be emotional about. So in one crowd, they're whipping up emotions sometimes. We've got to get you to jump. Get you. Don't jump for me. Don't do anything for me. I'll tell you what I learned in preaching. I don't care what you do. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to love him. I'm going to adore him. If you want to join, you've got every right to. You see, I used to always try to have to get the people and everything, and I finally asked my dad, I said, how can I get them? I, I'm, I, they're not doing much. He said, you're not doing much. I said, what? He said, wait, you pray for it to happen to you, and we'll join you. And so I quit working on the congregation. I said, God set me on fire. Does truth burn in me? Uh, you know, I see a lot of people, a lot of you, the only reason you serve God is it's a duty. You showed up today because it's a duty. We've ruined Christianity by making it a, a duty. 
It's like I have to kiss my wife twice a day because it's a law in California. You got to do it. You just hope she's brushed her teeth just before the kiss. No, 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 no. Kissing my wife is not a duty. It's a privilege. It's a delight. We nearly forgot how, but we still do it once in a while. You see, and we've turned God into duty. And we don't think that you can have truth with burning emotions, emotions where you're wiping your eyes and you want to raise your hands. That's why I can't understand you folks that have always been frozen. I don't know what's going on in your spirit. I can't judge that. You don't have to do this as loud as me or clap as loud as me. What's going on in your heart, in your spirit? What's going on? And that's why people get nervous here because, oh, we're too emotive. We're not emotive enough. As long as you've got truth for the basis of your emotion, your Bible, your worshiping. Truth. We don't have emotion without truth. That's just emotionalism and whipped up, right? And we don't have truth that is just dead right. I win all arguments, and I'm as dry as a bird nest. So what does truth burn in you? Where did you lose the romance in knowing Jesus? I thought he was a redeemer and a lover. You've turned him into a theological equation. I knew him just as good when I knew a lot less. My problem is I know far more than I'm experiencing. I want to worship. Some Sundays I come here, I have to preach whether I worship or not. And I get to the sermon, and I still keep you late. And you go home and say, well, he really wasn't on it today, was he? And the next week, you might say, man, he was a little carried away about something. I wonder what it was. <laughs> just, just let him have a conniption over him. When he gets over it, we'll just lead him out the side. He's beside himself. They said Paul was beside himself. They said Jesus was beside himself. I want to be beside myself. I want to be caught up with the wonder of our God. You shall worship. So let me tell you this. We used to sing a little song. Two songs about the water. The waters that Jesus gave me, they're sweeter than I can tell. They flow from the rock of ages, and they were not in the well. Paul and I used to hear old Brother Boatler sing that. And then we used to sing a little song. It goes this way. If Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere. If Jesus goes with me, can you imagine where all the churches meeting today in the world? In China, underground, our Sudanese Christians are being killed by Muslims, and they're in hiding. The church in uh, uh, Iraq is in hiding. We used to have an Iraqi brother move to Marin, Michael, and all of his family's hiding over there for their life because they're killing them left and right. Met some Assembly of God pastors. The pastors are being killed, being killed. So the people are hiding. They're trembling. But you know what? On Sunday, they meet to worship. They're in basements. They can't sing. You see, when it's Jesus, your spirit and truth, you don't need a choir. You don't need a band. I have to say, Sometimes the greatest worship I have all week is in my basement during the week. I can pray as loud as I want, as long as I want. 
I want to tell you, sometimes I think heaven comes down in that place. I've prayed through more storms down in that basement. I've had more worship experiences, as many as I've ever had in a gathered meeting. Because when a heart is hungry and thirsty for God, and your spirit's engaged, and Jesus is your new temple, which means he's the new meeting place between heaven and earth, and the spirit says, he's crying, Abba, Abba, and I, nothing satisfies your heart but Jesus once you meet him. You know why so many go back? They've never, never got a drink from the right well. He who drinks of me will never thirst again. I close. Sometimes worship comes in three stages. The ultimate is you're basking. You just you feel like you're scanning heaven and you're hilarious. It's up there, great crescendo type meetings. That's wonderful. Other times, a second kind of stage, a little bit lower. There's times uh, you're haunted by the memory of his presence, and all you've got is a taste but taste that says, I hunger to experience more of what I've experienced, for I feel dry and lean. I feel like that deer trying to find the water book, and I have to say I'm in a dry spell. Sometimes they are at the lowest rung, you feel barren. You might even be bitter at God. And you feel you're a thousand miles away, but that hunger bud taste just keeps welling up. Oh, I've tasted. I've seen. And it's the thing that keeps you from backsliding so far is you, you say, I, I want him. I'm dry. I'm, I'm not clicking like I want. I got, I've missed prayer. I've missed the word. I, whatever, but when you met him, you know what the water tastes like. He said, I'm thirsting in my soul to get in his presence. And what Jesus says, I'll go by Samaria, I'll look up a fallen woman, I'll offer her the water of eternal life, and I'll tell her, I want to turn you into a worshiper. And I'm not trying to get her to Jerusalem. I'm trying to get the inner man with truth, with truth, to go heavenward. We, we have stuff going around today. We call it worship battles. It's really the music battles. Did you know any music we sang today didn't make you worship? You sang words, but it didn't mean you worship. That's inner man. Just as I am, I can't get through it without being broken. But it doesn't mean you did. Well, we need more rhythm. We need, the, you, we need this kind of music. That, it doesn't matter what kind of music it is. This is the music God wants. Is, is your inner man connected? Is your heart connected? I'm sorry I can't finish it today. I'll pick it up. We're going to sing Amazing Grace. Let me pray that God would revive us as a church. Father, we've got so much to learn about worship. Who are we to teach anybody? All I could say is, I've tasted. I've basked in your presence before. I want truth. I want godly emotions. I want the joy of the Holy Spirit. I want the love of God. 
I want zeal for your name. I want adoration for you, Father, and for your blessed Son. Who could not worship a God that would give up his son for his enemies? Father, you're indescribable and overwhelmingly kind. Let us not make serving you a duty. Let it be the delight of our life to say that we don't boast that we're rich, that we're strong, or that we're wise. But Jeremiah says, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me. We boast that through Calvary we know you. Let us sing.